didn't James do such a great job leading us so well? Thank you, James. And thank you, musicians. Well, I really am. I really am excited to be back uh, in the Gospel of John, back in the pulpit. We had a nice week's holiday and good to realign and refresh the mind and think about things. And, and so we're back in the Gospel of John. Uh, the Gospel of John, obviously, is all about possessing life in Christ, possessing eternal life. And we know for the believer that we possess eternal life both now and forever in heaven's glory. We find ourselves after some time away back in John's gospel in John 6. And so turn with me there in your Bibles to this very, very special chapter. I give you fair warning. We will be in all 71 verses of it a very, very long time. It, it really is immense. The portion that we'll look at this morning is one of the most well-known events in all of the Bible. I doubt many of you have not read or heard about Jesus feeding the 5,000. This miracle is the only miracle worked by Jesus that appears in all four gospel records. It was Charles Spurgeon who said that the reason he believed that it's in all four Gospels is so that we do not forget what the Lord accomplishes when little things are yielded to Him. That's certainly an application that one can make of this passage. Perhaps this morning, there's something, even something little that you're holding on to, perhaps a sin or an offense or a hurt. I want to say to you, never underestimate what Jesus can and will accomplish when you, like the little boy that we're about to read of in a moment, hands over what little he has and finds it's in the hands now of Jesus. Never, ever underestimate that. But the main idea and the point of the passage is grasped when we understand why Jesus feeds the multitudes and what it signifies. And so let's read our passage together as we begin our journey through John 6. Our passage of consideration this morning will be the first 15 verses of John 6. And if you're visiting with us this morning or joining us for the first time or the first time in a long time, we want to invite you to join with us on this journey through this gospel as we sequentially week by week go through it. And may God add a blessing to the reading of his word. John chapter 6 verse 1, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive even a little. 
One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here, a young boy, who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftovers, the leftover fragments, so that nothing will be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet Who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are holy, we acknowledge that you are most worthy. We thank you. For the lungs and tongues to sing of all that you've done for us. And we marvel that each and every Lord's Day is an ongoing expression of your love for us. We thank you for the Lord's table. We thank you for all that goes on when we assemble. And so, Father, would you bless the preaching of your word? Would we all sit under its authority? Would we all welcome its instruction? And would you give us fresh eyes to behold the glory of your beloved Son? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Heidelberg Catechism. It was written in 1563. That's a long time ago. Begins by asking this question. What is your only comfort in life And death. And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. It's the Heidelberg Catechism, question one, answer one, 1563. It was true back then, it's very true today. What's your only comfort in life and death? What is it? Well, for the believer, it's that I'm not my own, but I belong both in life and in death to a faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. John 6, like the Gospel of John, will place us 
before our Jesus. This is part one of a series that I don't know how long it's going to go for called Our Jesus. We'll see firsthand how our Jesus works. We'll see again who he is, what he does, why he does what he does. We'll see his glory. We'll be reminded of that which we may have forgotten. Namely, that Jesus ought to be what captivates our attention and has our affections. And then what will occur is then twofold. And this is fundamentally important because if you have one without the other, I think you're missing the mark. What happens when we are having Jesus as the one who captivates our attention, who has our affections, what will occur is twofold. Number one, the things of this world will grow dim. But also the courage and the conviction to live out our faith in this world will grow strong. You have to have both. You have to have both. You would recall, I'm sure, the purpose of this gospel. We must never forget the purpose of this gospel each and every time we come to this gospel. John chapter 20 verse 31 says that this gospel was written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you might have life in His name. You know this, that is to say then that the purpose of John is evangelistic and it is experiential. It's both of those. It's evangelistic because it calls for a verdict. Everything written about it is that one might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. And it's also experiential because the one who believes, who is then given new life in Christ, it then fuels and energizes that life, that new life. As we do what? You remember? As we live all of life through the lens of the fact, John chapter 1 verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. Every believer here, day by day, although in a very special Way as the Spirit of God attends the preaching of the Word of God, we see His glory. We behold the glory of Christ. How do we see His glory? Well, first, John chapter 11, verse 40, Jesus said, Did I not say to you that when you believe, you will see the glory of God? I keep saying this because we must be reminded of this. We live out our eternal life in each and every moment that we live with glory of Jesus Christ to behold. And as I've said before, to the measure that we're beholding Christ, that is, finding Christ in the pages of Scripture, beholding His glory in the pages of Scripture, both read and preached, to the measure that we do that is the measure that we are truly alive. And that's what it means to live in His name, as it were. You know, these things are not cliches. They're not platitudes. We are to be moved by a person, his person, who he is, and to be so compelled by his love that we continue to live for him like the Heidelberg Catechism 
so beautifully unfolds. That's what John is doing in this gospel. That's the purpose of every word that he types. The first 15 verses that we just read. That is what he is doing. He's staying true to the theme of the gospel. He's highlighting that to us that the one who feeds the multitudes is the word become flesh. The word that was in the beginning with God and the word that was God. It is God who gives new life in the soul of a person. And in order to receive that life, that new life, one must receive the one who was sent by God, the Lord Jesus, who's accomplished so much for us. And when you think about it, he's so worthy of our lives. He must be the source of satisfaction and joy of our life. But you know, Due to all the division being stirred up in the world, some Christians are bumping in to each other. John the Apostle wrote in another portion of Scripture, he wrote there in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I tell you that, Because we need to be reminded that it's the evil one that stirs up the world through those who have the authority to enact things in the world. I tell you what, if we all started bumping into Jesus more in the pages of Scripture, there would be less bumping into one another. This is not the time to allow the world and the evil one to steal our joy. Jesus said that he came come to steal, kill, and destroy. You can bet your bottom dollar that if you are losing your joy, it's because you're not bumping into Jesus enough. This is the time to draw down joy, draw down satisfaction from God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As I said, when we do that, the things of the world will grow dim, but also the courage and conviction to live out our faith in this world will grow strong, and we need both. John, in his gospel, lists only eight miracles. The other gospels contain many more. You remember that John writes at the very end of this gospel that there are so many miracles and things that Jesus did that are not written in this gospel. Remember, John doesn't use the word miracle in the gospel of John. He uses the word sign. The other gospels use miracle. John uses the word sign. And so John is very, very careful in the miracles that he does mention, eight of them, because he has a goal. And that goal is to stay true to the purpose of this gospel. The first miraculous sign is in John 2, you remember, where Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding. That signified great joy. That signified the abundance that Jesus' death would bring about to all who believe. Then in John 4, Jesus healed the nobleman's son who was close to death. Then in John 5, there was the man by the pool of Bethesda who had not walked for 38 years. And now in John 6, we read of the feeding of the 5,000. 
We know it was much more than 5,000 people, don't we? Matthew tells us that it was 5,000, and then he adds, not including the women and children. And so estimates are about 20 to 25,000 people are here this day, and they're all fed. Jesus is performing a miraculous sign, and John is writing in keeping with his theme. We've seen that John has worked hard and then will unfold even more as this chapter unfolds that Jesus, the Son, shares in full divine equality with the Father. Look back at verse 36 of John 5 with me, which is where we were last time where we were in John. Jesus says there, that the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, he says, they testify about me that the Father has sent me. And while no one prior to Jesus coming to earth had known or seen God, it was according to John chapter 1, verse 18, it was the Son who explains the Father. To us. Before writing chapter 6 and the very end of chapter 5, in the very end of chapter 5, John gave us several testimonies to Jesus being the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the one who shares in the divine nature and essence of the Father, one who is truly God and sent of God to accomplish. Salvation. John 6 contains such deep, immense truth that will unfold for us in profound ways the statement that I just made. One, Jesus is truly God, sent of God to accomplish salvation. He's sent of God to accomplish salvation, and more than just accomplish salvation, John 6 will unfold for us, and the remainder of John's gospel is that. More than just accomplishing salvation, he is also to be the source of our joy. The source of our satisfaction. You and I, with our unredeemed flesh, can begin to seek to find joy in the wrong places. Satisfaction from the wrong source. And if we're not careful, we can drag other believers down with us. In our passage this morning, Jesus feeds 20,000 plus men, women and children with bread. Right after doing so, he will then tell them that he is the bread of life. He says in. Verse 35 of John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Let's begin now to walk through our passage of consideration this morning. And if you're taking notes, as I know many of you do, and you want something to hang your thoughts on, we will see, number one, the wrong motive. The wrong motive in verses 1 through 4. We'll see, second, number two, the wrong perspective. In verses 5 through 9. We'll see third, the wonderful Savior. In verses 10 to 13. And then fourth, we'll see the wrong time. 
in verses 14 to 15. I kind of like that outline. Everything is wrong and then there's a wonderful Savior. It kind of sums it up. Now let's look at the first heading there, the wrong motive in verses 1 through 4. Look at verse 1 with me. After these things, after these things. Interestingly enough, that's an incredibly generic term in the Greek. I looked at that and it, it doesn't convey any sequential or time frame aspect. It's just a, a very generic term. You see, it amazes me that that's used there by divine insight and inspiration rather by God because between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, about 12 months had passed. A long time. From Mark's gospel, we learned that Jesus had sent the 12 disciples out on a kind of apprenticeship kind of mission there on a practice run as part of their discipleship with him. Jesus had left Jerusalem. Everything else is up in Jerusalem. He's left there now and he's gone into Galilee and began his Galilean ministry. And it was there that he sent the 12 out on their own on that, on that trip. Well, the 12 returned from that mission that they'd been sent out on and they're wiped. And Jesus, no doubt, is wiped as well because we know that he was healing all kinds of sickness. He was preaching about the kingdom of God. Because one thing to note here is this. Between chapters 5 and 6 was the murder of John the Baptist. And since John was the forerunner of Jesus, we know that once John had been killed, Jesus then really kicked his ministry into gear. Forerunner's gone, my ministry begins, he says, and he began to preach. I remember Mark chapter 1 verse 38, Jesus began to preach, it says, because this is why he came. Preached about the need to repent, turn away from your sin, and he preached about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus does all that. The twelve are out on their mission. They return and they're all tired, Jesus included. And they want to rest. They want to rest. Jesus would do this. He would go to places alone or with the twelve and rest. It's good for you. It's good. They set off to the other side of the sea of Galilee, You see, they'd been on the other side of Galilee, the bustling part on the west, doing their ministry. But they head now to the other side on the east, a quieter part on the east side, less populated. And if you read Mark's gospel, and I remember from our time preaching through that, it was here that the large crowd saw Jesus and the twelve crossing by the boat, and they followed them on foot along the shoreline. So much so... And so many were there that by the time Jesus and the twelve reached the other side, waiting for them was this gigantic crowd. Why the crowd? Because between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6, Jesus had been very busy. And his ambassadors had been very, very busy proclaiming the good news. Jesus was healing and teaching with authority, and that had drawn the masses. But what John tells us, and remember, this is the first heading, the wrong motive. John tells us is that the masses had wrong motives. Look at verse 2. 
A large crowd. 20 to 25,000 people. That's a decent crowd. Followed him. Why'd they follow him? Because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. The crowd was not motivated by their need for the forgiveness of their sins. They weren't motivated by a love for Jesus. They were motivated by what they could get from Jesus. Look over at verse 26 of John 6. Same people, same crowd. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. On the initial outset, Jesus confronts them for seeking signs. The same people receive bread. And he tells them, you come to me because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Either way you look at it, you're coming to me for the wrong reason. The wrong motive. There's a danger that we must talk about here. It's the danger of coming to Jesus simply for a nice, comfortable life. And then doing every, everything you can to maintain a nice, comfortable life. This is a danger that plays out in the life of the false convert. And it's a danger that plays out in the life of the one not beholding the glory of Christ as they ought. For the false convert, you look at Christians and they appear moral. And they are. And because they have the blessing of God around them and because they desire to walk uprightly, they sometimes live with a certain stability that's attractive to you. And so you may come and follow Christ on those grounds. But you need to follow Christ the same way they followed Christ. And that was acknowledging that they are a great sinner in need of a great Savior. The only motive to come to Jesus Christ is acknowledging your sin. The good news is only good because you are the bad news. And the bad news is, is that you're a sinner. But the good news is, is that Jesus Christ forgives sin. And so come to him on the right motive. And by implication, those of us that have come to Christ must always reevaluate our motives for following Christ. Our Lord Jesus knew that when he entered into Jerusalem, that he was going to suffer. He didn't turn back. And so may we who are united to a, a Savior who didn't turn back, may we, having been not given a spirit of timidity and fear, but one of power, not shrink back from embracing any suffering that may come our way.
as a result of following Jesus. We see in verse 3 that Jesus wants time with his disciples. Then Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Sitting on a mountain was significant in Jesus' ministry. We know that he did this. Obviously, the Mount of Olives and the, the, the Beatitudes. Often a rabbi would go up onto an elevated place and then sit down, speak with authority. And then verse 4, a significant thing is mentioned there, the Passover. The Passover. I want you to know that verse 4 is not there chronologically, in the sense that it's not so much to do with what is occurring chronologically, but it's there because of something far more theological, which we'll consider in just a moment. But so first what we see is the wrong motive. Second, we see now, number two, in verses 5 through 9, the wrong perspective. The wrong perspective. Verse 5 tells us that the crowd started coming up the hill. Large crowd is gathered. Jesus takes him and his disciples up onto the mountain. They spend a little bit of time there. I'm sure Jesus was unfolding for them all that was to come, all that had happened. And the crowd starts coming up the hill. The other Gospels tell us, namely Matthew 14 and Luke 9, that as the crowd started to, where, to come to where Jesus and the twelve were, that Jesus once again started to heal the sick among them as they were coming up. And he once again began to tell them about the kingdom of God. But I want you to listen to what the twelve disciples said. Far more like you and I. Mark chapter 6 verse 36. They began to say, send them away. Send them away so that they can go into town and buy themselves some food. We know, however, that Jesus didn't do that. And the reason that Jesus didn't do that and what Jesus did do is given to us in another gospel account. Again, the gospel of Mark, where we read that Jesus looked out upon those people and it says he had compassion upon them. Compassion upon them. That's a scathing rebuke to us at times, I'd say. When we fail to have compassion upon people. Never underestimate when all that's going on in the world right now can bind up your heart and prevent you from having compassion. Passion. If there's one thing that we need right now is compassion. And compassion is not mere sympathy. It's empathy. It's empathy. It's empathy that moves one to act. times like this in our church family we have people struggling we have new people compassion should be extended to all and one another compassion let not this world harden our heart
Jesus now then seeks to accomplish a couple of lessons in the life of the twelve. First, he speaks to Philip, one of the twelve. Interestingly enough, out of all the twelve, he chooses Philip who was from there, from Bethsaida. He grabs the guy from the area and says to the man from the neighborhood, end of verse 5, look there, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Perhaps he knew the local dairy or the local fisherman or bread maker, whatever it was. But verse 6 tells us why he was asking that question. He was saying this to test him. Jesus knew what he was intending to do. He knows what he's intending to do in each and every heart of each and every follower of his. Mine and yours. That's what he's doing. He's doing a greater work than your present circumstances can reveal to you. Jesus here is seeking to test and stretch his followers so as to strengthen our commitment to Christ and to establish our faith in him as we live our lives for him. At seminary in Los Angeles, I worked in the admissions department the entire time I was at seminary, and I'm getting absolutely stretched by all that's going on in the curriculum of the seminary, the syllabi, the syllabus, all the coursework, but then you're also getting stretched by God. And I always would always say to the, the incoming students that this seminary has its curriculum, but God has his curriculum too. And his curriculum is to stretch you and make you and break you. And he does that out of love. He's beginning to do that here with his disciples to strengthen our commitment to him. To establish our faith in him as we live our lives for him. It is Philip who then answers in verse 7. His answer shows us that both he and the other disciples were off the mark. They had the wrong perspective. They were lacking faith. Look at verse 7. Philip says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive even a little. Think about it. They had all seen... Philip most certainly included, they'd all seen Jesus turn water into wine. They'd all seen him heal the nobleman's son, and they'd seen him by the pool in Bethesda heal the lame man who'd been there for 38 years. True faith and proper perspective would have turned to Jesus and said, Lord, you are the Messiah. You are able to work works of mighty power for your works as you did tell us in fact you told us that that your works are from the father and they testify that you and the father are one and God the father is powerful over this whole world and you're one with the father and so Lord you do it you you you, you can do this Lord but that's not what Philip said he could not Look past the present. He couldn't look past the present. He couldn't have faith that God would work. Instead, Philip clinically calculated the amount needed. He must have been good with numbers. And he looks over the crowd and he just says, 
Yeah, you know what? Not even 200 denarii will do it, Lord. Not even a, that much would get even a little for the people. It's not enough. One denarii was a full day's wages. 200 denarii is therefore then about eight months wages. And so Philip's like, look, eight months of wages won't even do it, Lord. Philip is saying this is a hopeless situation. It's hopeless. Why is he saying that? He's saying that because he's only thinking from an earthly, natural perspective. When we're not bumping into Jesus and the glories of Jesus in the pages of Scripture, we will bump into each other on an earthly, natural perspective. Philip here has forgotten that when his Lord worked the miracle of turning water into wine or healing the lame man... He's forgotten that when you are with Jesus and you are one of Jesus's, you no longer live in that earthly, natural plane. You are partakers with the divine nature and live in a supernatural plane. You know, we can have faith to accomplish big things. Even when things look hopeless, we really can't. But look what happens next, verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Philip was lacking hope altogether. Andrew was maybe in possession of a flicker of hope. Maybe. He highlights that there's this young boy, and he's got a couple of crackers and a few tiny fish. <laughs> Mark tells us that Jesus told the disciples to go out into the crowd and find out what they've got. That's all they found. A tiny handful of little crackers, which, by the way, are made by the cheapest flour. And then two little fish. That's all they had. I think Jesus sent the disciples out into the crowd to further stretch and test them by increasing the direness of the situation. But what does that do? That then displays the grandeur of what Jesus is about to do. Never underestimate the work He will do in your life when you are too earthly and lacking in faith and find yourself in a hopeless state. Never underestimate the work that Jesus will do To bring you to the point of returning to hope-filled joy in Him. Never underestimate that. And you know, to understand what is about to occur here, with 25,000 people, with a couple of crackers and two tiny fish, we need to understand a little bit about how eating and drinking is thought of in the Old Testament. Leon Morris's commentary was helpful for this. It's always a sign of prosperity. Ecclesiastes 8.15 says, A man has no better thing under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. Eating and drinking is what is spoken of as the blessing of God. And what the people of God 
would experience in the promised land, right? That was one of the promises. A land flowing with milk and honey. You don't drink honey. You eat it on toast and drink milk. In fact, we're told, aren't we, that in glory, in, a, in heaven's glory, we will eat and drink at the great banquet of the Lamb. Yeah, hallelujah indeed. What the Old Testament also reveals to us is that, is that the absence of eating and drinking is often a metaphor for spiritual disaster. In Leviticus 26, 23 to 26, you read about disobedience to God leading to an absence of food, an absence of food and drink. Philip is not living by faith. Andrew's trying to a little, but altogether the 12 have the wrong perspective. The crowds have the wrong motive. But what Jesus does now is perform a miracle that serves as a very powerful sign to highlight number three, and that is the wonderful Savior in verses 10 to 13. Look there. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. And so the men sat down in number about 5,000. That word man is a generic word for Men. <laughs> Fancy that. There's, um, there, there, there's the word for men and then there's the word for humanity. And uh, this one is the word for men, I believe, <laughs> which signifies to us that there is more than 5,000 people. There's 5,000 men. There's a large group there. Jesus then took the loaves he gave thanks. He distributed to those who were seated. Also, likewise, of the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. In other miracles... Jesus took something that was already there, water, and he transferred it, tra transformed it into wine. In other miracles, Jesus took a person who was sick and he healed them, restored their organs and the like. Well, this is unique in the sense that something wasn't there. And Jesus just kept creating and creating and creating. And one commentator said, this fish had never been in a fallen world. It would have tasted really nice. Extra nice. It's just this amazing scene where Jesus just has the disciples distribute an endless supply of food as much as they wanted until they were full. You remember how I mentioned the Passover in verse 4? The Passover is celebrated 
by the Jews as a result of the exodus from Egypt. Part of that feast was the slaughter of the household lamb. The Gospel of John presents Jesus as the Lamb of God. This is the second Passover mentioned. There's three Passovers mentioned in the Gospel of John. The first mention in chapter 2 was there when Jesus spoke of himself being the temple that would be destroyed and then rebuilt in three days. Jesus is speaking of his death. The second mention here of the Passover is linked to the feeding of the crowds. And what is the feeding of the crowds linked to? Well, the feeding of the crowds is linked to Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. The true manna is what Jesus says. And so when you take all that, what you have is a deep sign that Jesus is teaching something and that John is being purposeful to show us. And it's not that we marvel at Jesus feeding 20,000 people. That's just like marveling at the benefits that we receive from Jesus and adoring the forgiveness of sins instead of adoring the Savior who purchased for us the forgiveness of sins. If we just look and marvel at Jesus feeding 20,000 people and say, wow, we miss the fact that Jesus is performing this miraculous sign to tens of thousands here to show that he is indeed the final Passover lamb who will provide everything his people need. That there is this gigantic chasm between what a person is able to do in their total and utter insufficiency and what Jesus is able and has done as an all-sufficient lamb of God. The final Passover lamb. And as the final Passover lamb, he is the supplier of his people's every spiritual need. And so when these people sat around and they ate as much as they wanted, it was to serve as a sign that Jesus supplies everything. We need. Spiritually. From death to life. He's the one who has, has words of eternal life. Look at verse 32 of John 6. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, is it, not Mo it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the, bread out of, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world 
is my flesh. So when Jesus feeds 20,000 people, it is serving as an illustration that he is the true manna that comes down out of heaven. He is signifying what he will do. And for us, we can rejoice in what he has done. He is our Jesus. He is worthy of our praise. Do you know that there was a feast that took place on this hill where there was much grass? And Jesus had them all sit down and fed them. Do you know that there was another feast that took place, not where there was much grass, but where there was much immorality, and that was Herod's feast. There was Herod's feast on the other side of Galilee when he lopped off the head of John the Baptist. And on the other side of Galilee, there was this feast that served to illustrate all that Jesus would accomplish for his people. And there's one very important thing that I want to just end on. God accomplished this great work here to signify the work of his beloved son. But did you notice that he had means by which he accomplished that work? The disciples distributed the miraculous works of Jesus. You and I have one life, and it will soon be past. And only, only what's done for Christ will last. And so instead of bumping into each other, let's bump into Jesus. Let's bump into Jesus. In the final two verses there, the heading is called the wrong time and we've run out of time. But what happens there is that the people saw the sign. They're so overwhelmed by the sign. They say, truly, this is the prophet. There's some debate whether they were saying, understanding that this is the Messiah promised to come, the true Messiah, or if this just is a prophet. But what happens in verse 15 is quite amazing. They were so fired up. They were so excited by what they had seen that they come to try and make Jesus king by force, but he gets out of there. It was the wrong time. Why does he get out of there? Because for Jesus, ushering in the messianic kingdom is not about comfort and ease. He must go and die. He must suffer under the hand of God that he might usher in the kingdom. Have you trusted in the suffering servant today? Have you rested fully in Jesus' works on the cross instead of your own? It's good to be back in John's gospel. Holy and majestic Father, we come before you. And we thank you that there can be such rich truth in such a little portion and speaking of little portions father we want to take the inadequacy and whatever little we have 
and give it to you and watch you do mighty works. We are not competent in and of ourselves, but our competency comes from you. And so would you help us to turn our minds to Christ so that we would have the things of this world grow strangely dim and that we would have the courage and conviction to live out our faith in this world and have it grow strong. I pray for this precious church. I call out to you, Father God, would, would you accomplish far abundantly beyond anything we can ask in prayer or comprehend in our mind through the preaching of your word? Would you bless us? Would you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one? Would you draw any lost soul who's looked to or is following Jesus with the wrong motive? Would you give us the proper perspective? Would we rejoice in a wonderful Savior? And we thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen.